York, this is Democracy Now! We are here to call out the Philippine government to uphold the rights of women workers, to form organizations, to form unions. Millions are taking to the streets today across the world on International Women's Day, celebrating half the planet's population, even as many continue to face discrimination, violence, and abuse. The Taliban's intentional and calculated policy is to repudiate the human rights of women and girls and to erase them from public life. It may amount to the international crime of gender persecution, for which the authorities can be held accountable. We'll look at Afghanistan, what the UN is calling the world's most repressive country for women, and get an update on the women-led protests in Iran. We'll also look at the impact of abortion bans and the criminalization of abortion from the United States to El Salvador, where Teodora Vasquez served a decade in prison after her baby was born dead in a stillbirth at nine months. First, they said it was an abortion, and then they changed it from abortion to aggravated homicide. They sentenced me to 30 years. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The occupied West Bank's observing a general strike today, one day after Israeli forces raided a Janine refugee camp, killing six Palestinians, the deadliest attack by Israel, which has killed at least 73 Palestinians since the start of the year. Meanwhile, in the Palestinian village of Huara, Israeli settlers ambushed a family, including an elderly man and a toddler. This is the family's grandmother describing the attack. We were done with shopping and got into the car. He was about to switch the car on. Suddenly, we did not know where they come from. They were like rabid dogs, attacking all at once. We did not see them. The road was empty. It seems like they wait and lay low and hunt people down. And a correction on you, Janine. It was the latest deadly attack, the Israeli forces attacking the Janine refugee camp. The, in Ukraine, the mercenary Wagner Group says it's captured eastern Bakhmut, the site of protracted deadly fighting. Ukraine has vowed to keep defending the city, saying it's repelled significant attacks and warning its loss would lead to an open road through Ukraine's east for Russian forces. Meanwhile, Kyiv has denied any involvement in September's attack on the Nord Stream pipelines after The New York Times reported unnamed U.S. intelligence officials suggesting a pro-Ukrainian group was responsible, but that there is no evidence the group was directed by Ukrainian officials. Meanwhile, in Russia, student blogger Dmitry Ivanov has been sentenced to over eight years in prison for being critical of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Ivanov addressed reporters from the courtroom. You must understand that Russia is not Putin. We didn't vote for him, and he didn't ask us uh, about starting this war with our closest neighbors. I know that tens of millions of uh, people here in Russia are against this criminal war. A lot of, the, uh, of us have friends and relatives in Ukraine, and we feel their pain. 
In the country of Georgia, police use water cannons and tear gas against protesters in the capital, Tbilisi, as thousands of people turned out to condemn a proposed law on so-called foreign agents. The contested bill would require non-governmental organizations and independent media outlets that receive more than 20 percent of their funding from international sources to declare themselves agents of foreign influence. Critics slam the move as a violation of press freedom and civil society. Georgians also fear it would jeopardize the country's bid for European Union membership. Georgian President Salome Zorabishvili vowed to veto the bill, though the ruling party has enough votes to override that. No one needed this law. It came from nowhere, but maybe it was dictated from Moscow. It needs to go. It needs to be repealed any way you want. In Egypt, three journalists from the independent news website Matamasa are on trial, facing up to two years in prison and $10,000 fines for allegedly misusing social media and offending members of parliament. Rana Mamduth, Sarah Saif Aden, and Bisan Kassab are being tried over an article last year about a government watchdog that uncovered gross financial misconduct among politicians. It's the latest attack on Matamasa by the government of Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, who Amnesty International is accused of turning journalism into a crime. Reporters Without Borders says 73 women journalists around the world are spending International Women's Day behind bars. Spain's government approved a draft law aimed at bolstering equal representation of women in politics, business and other institutions. The measure, announced by Prime Minister Pedro Sánchez at a rally for the Socialist Party over the weekend, will now be debated and voted on by the Spanish parliament. This is Spain's economy minister, Nadia Cavino. It establishes a target of 40 percent female participation in public and private management and decision-making bodies with a realistic timetable. On the political level, electoral candidacies must have an equal composition of men and women by alternate lists. And finally, it is stipulated that the Spanish government must also be governed by the principle of a balanced presence of women and men. The number of pregnant and breastfeeding women and girls experiencing malnutrition has skyrocketed since 2020 over 12 countries in Africa and Asia. That's according to UNICEF, which says nearly 7 million mothers are suffering from hunger as a food shortage crisis has worsened due to the war in Ukraine, the climate crisis, ongoing conflict and the pandemic. The hardest hit nations include Afghanistan, Yemen, Ethiopia, Somalia and Sudan. Children born to malnourished mothers are more likely to develop chronic health issues and have a higher risk of mortality. Back in the United States, five women are suing Texas after they were denied abortions, even as their pregnancies posed serious risks to their health and were non-viable. The Center for Reproductive Rights is bringing the lawsuit on behalf of the women and two doctors. This is Plaintiff Amanda Zorowski. I cannot adequately put into words the trauma and despair that comes with waiting to either lose your own life, your child's life, or both. For days, I was locked in this bizarre and avoidable hell. In a matter of minutes, I went from being physically healthy to developing sepsis, a condition in which bacteria in the blood develops into infection with the ability to kill in under an hour. 
It's the first such lawsuit since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last year, triggering a rash of abortion bans in states across the United States. Gigi Sohn, President Biden's pick for the Federal Communications Commission and a champion of net neutrality and consumer rights, has withdrawn her nomination following an onslaught of attacks by industry lobbyists. On Tuesday, conservative Democrat Joe Manchin confirmed he would not vote to confirm Sohn. Companies like AT&T, Verizon and Comcast killed her nomination over Sohn's support of net neutrality and low-cost broadband. Right-wing outlets also launched a homophobic smear campaign against her. Uh, she is a lesbian. She said in a statement, quote, It is a sad day for our country and our democracy when dominant industries with assistance from unlimited dark money get to choose their regulators. And with the help of their friends in the Senate, the powerful cable and media companies have done just that, she said. The FCC, which should have five commissioners, has been at a partisan two-to-two -two deadlock since December 2020. The Justice Department is sued to block JetBlue's $3.8 billion acquisition of Spirit Airlines. It's the first time in over two decades the U.S. government has intervened to block an airline merger and the latest antitrust action from the Biden administration. This is Vanita Gupta, Associate Attorney General. Ultra-low-cost carriers like Spirit play a key role in the economy. They make air travel possible so more Americans can take a hard-earned family vacation or celebrate and mourn together with loved ones. We allege that the proposed merger would lead to fewer seats and higher prices for travelers. And we allege that the proposed merger would heighten the risk that remaining airlines would coordinate to raise prices. And in France, 1.3 million people took to the streets Tuesday in the sixth and largest yet nationwide protest against raising the pension age from 62 to 64. Train services were disrupted, schools shut, fuel deliveries blocked. Police used water cannons and tear gas against some of the crowds. Union leaders say they'll continue disrupting public life until the government acquiesces to the widespread public opposition to its plan. This is a retired worker speaking at a march in Paris. It is about our children, our grandchildren. I mean, imagine how it will be in 50 years if we reduce the few rights that employees have for the benefit of the corporations that earn intolerable profits without being taxed, of course. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Nermeen Sheikh. Happy International Women's Day, Nermeen. Happy International Women's Day to you, too, and to our audiences. Welcome across the country and around the world. Well, today, March 8th, marks International Women's Day around the world, celebrating half the planet's population, even as many continue to face discrimination, violence and abuse. Some women are using the day to speak back to corporate co-optation of the holiday on social media by posting about pay gaps at places that pay men more than women. Women and their allies are also gathering in person for events big and small. Millions are demonstrating in Spain, which on Tuesday passed a new gender equality mandate for large companies, civil service and government institutions. Meanwhile, in Pakistan, women marched despite threats by conservative 
groups to stop them by force. A neighboring Afghanistan is now the world's most repressive country for women, according to the United Nations. We'll talk about that later in the show. We'll also talk about the women-led protests in Iran and calls to address the abortion ban crisis in El Salvador and other countries. But we begin here in the United States, which ended the constitutional right to abortion last year. We begin with Nancy Krieger, renowned professor of social epidemiology at Harvard University's School of Public Health, director of the Interdisciplinary Concentration on Women, Gender and Health. She's also co-founder and chair of the Spirit of 1848 Caucus in the American Public Health Association, which links social justice and public health. She gives the introduction each year to the school's International Women's Day event by laying out its radical history. So, Professor Krieger, welcome to Democracy Now! and Teach. Tell us about this day's roots in socialism and more. Thank you very much for having me, and it's wonderful to be with you. And yes, International Women's Day has a very long progressive history that's often not well known. And we have been celebrating it now for over 11 years at the School of Public Health with the Women, Gender and Health Concentration to bring that history back to life so that people can make the connections. So the very first International National Women's Day that took place actually in 1909 in the U.S., it was on its last Sunday in February, and it was organized by American socialists tied to the labor organizing that was going on at that time and also the push for women's suffrage. One year later, Clara Zetkin, who uh, made a proposal for an International Women's Day at the second-ever International Conference of Socialist Women, which was held in Copenhagen, and they made good on that promise in 1911, when there was the first European International Women's Day that was held in Vienna. It was organized by socialist and communist women at the time, and it was held, importantly, on March 18th. This was to be a commemoration of the 40th anniversary then of the Paris Commune, which is started on March 18th in 1871, and radical experiment, among others, in democracy. And it was violently suppressed May 28th. And so they were remembering it 40 years later, just as we in 2023 would remember an event in 1983, which is obviously back to the Reagan presidency in the United States, among other things, not that far ago. And then what happened is that same year it was observed in other countries, including Denmark, Germany, and Switzerland. And by 1917, March 8th became the official day for International Women's Day. And that date, March 8th, corresponded to February 22nd, which in the Gregorian calendar was equal to March 8th, which was the date of a huge demonstration in Russia against the Tsar, led by women it was about food and wages and rights. And that was a key demonstration that led to the overthrow of the, of the Russian Tsar. And also the provisional government that was, came into power right thereafter immediately, among other things, enacted suffrage for women, which was actually three years before the United States. So that's when International Women's Day really began to take off, and it became established as a, a holiday in what was then the Soviet Union in 1922. And it was key, hearing earlier in your broadcast about demonstrations in Spain. In 1936, there was an enormous International Women's Day demonstration led by La Pasionara, who was fighting for protecting the Spanish Republic against the fascist government at that time. So basically, until from 1945, after the war, to 66, 
International Women's Day was pretty much observed only in communist countries and became, in effect, a kind of Mother's Day. It sort of lost the radical edge that it had at the beginning, but it was rediscovered in 1967 by a group of women in Chicago, in the Chicago Circle, which was a women's liberation consciousness group. And they began to call for reviving the history of International Women's Day, and it was eventually picked up in 1975 by the UN and became an internationally recognized day. So here we are in 2011. It was the 100th anniversary of International Women's Day, still a lot of the agenda unmet from what was demanded 100 years prior. And now here we are today in 2023. It's effectively its 112th anniversary. Thank you so much, Professor Krieger, for that, uh, that history. And even as uh, many are not aware of its socialist origins, as you've pointed out, uh, could you talk about how it's been linked to other uh, causes for social justice, not just here in the U.S., but also across the world, including, of course, as we were mentioning uh, earlier, reproductive justice and rights? So International Women's Day has its roots in saying that women and their families— however they are defined, however the women are defined, should have the ability to thrive, to engage productively in the world, to live joyful lives. And that means having children or not, as makes sense, and having the opportunities for those children to thrive. So it's always been tied to demands around reproductive justice, as you just mentioned, around labor rights and about good jobs and about access to education and about safe and sustainable communities and more. So it's inseparable from all the other demands. And that's what was always the original spirit when you think about who was st stepping out, asking and demanding for political enfranchisement to be able to have their lives and their views represented in government and pass laws and legislation and policies that protect people's right to thrive and, and is, cr is crucially important. Right now, very much so through the framework of reproductive justice, which was first articulated before UN conferences back 20-odd years ago, particularly by black feminist organizations and leaders in this country, it was linking, again, not just simply reproductive choice, but reproductive justice, to be able to have the conditions in which people can thrive, and that means for the children that they have, and it also means if they choose not to have children. So these are very connected struggles, and it can't be linked, unlinked from other struggles for health justice, whether about environmental, climate justice, you name it. They come together. They're embodied by people, and they're embodied very much through what we see in the maternal and reproductive health data that you see that are wildly different across different social groups, racialized groups, economic groups in the U.S. and throughout the world between and within countries. Professor Krieger, could you uh, talk about uh, what's happened in particular as we mark this day in 2023, what the impact of the pandemic has been on uh, exacerbating inequities with respect to uh, women, not just in terms of health, but also in the workplace uh, as a result of what happened during the pandemic? Certainly. The COVID pandemic effectively ripped the Band-Aid off, as it were, to reveal wide inequities that were already known by those paying attention to them and, above all, those living and experiencing them. And these inequities were violently shown during the first particularly year of the pandemic before there was access to any vaccine. And while there was new work going quickly underway to try to figure out how to reduce mortality amongst those who were affected. And so what happened was that the first peoples that were worst, most likely to die, 
particularly I can speak to the U.S. data, were people that were both the frontline workers, people that were deemed, quote-unquote, essential, that had to show up at work, but were ultimately treated as expendable, predominantly low-income workers of color, and um, those many in caring occupations, which are disproportionately by people who are considered to be women. And so you saw much higher mortality there, plus also high mortality amongst people that were in congregate homes, elderly homes, nursing homes, which were understaffed over, who, with workers who were overworked, again, predominantly low-income of color, and again, predominantly women in those occupations. And then they and, and people in those nursing homes had high rates. So you saw big inequities in the COVID mortality. And really, back then, it was through excess deaths, understanding them, because there wasn't good COVID testing for everyone. And that's still true now. Not all COVID deaths are actually accurately recorded. And there are differentials by racialized group and economic group in getting good data to understand the impact of the inequities and who was lost. And then, obviously, it's not just about the loss of the individuals who died. It's all the people and their families and networks. To understand, you have to understand the ripple effects that this has put through understand the impacts, what it means on the kids who have been orphaned, what it means when there are no caregivers for elderly if their children have died. So the toll continues. Professor Krieger, you're a renowned professor of social epidemiology. I think the world came to understand how to pronounce the word epidemiologist over <laughs> these last three years. And so if you can talk um, about Reproductive health care. Now, we just had in our headlines today five women suing Texas after they were denied abortions, even as their pregnancy posed serious risk to their health and were not viable. One woman describing how no Texas OBGYN would perform an abortion, which meant she went um, into uh, sepsis, which meant she may not be able to have another child when that's all she wanted. Um, we're going to also talk about the ban on abortion in El Salvador. If you can talk about reproductive rights, the attack on it, and why this year you're celebrating a birthing center in Roxbury. Sure. So reproductive justice encompasses reproductive rights and goes beyond that. But reproductive rights are very essential. And that means the capacity to access the appropriate medical care for what one's reproductive needs are. Those can be needs that involve in vitro fertilization. They can be needs that involve not having children and getting access to appropriate contraception. They can be needs that involve actually terminating a pregnancy, including abortion. These are all actual normal health care procedures. They're necessary for people's health, period. And that affects the health of everyone who's around people, because people can be very worried about loved ones when they can't get the health care that they absolutely need. Um, so, so these fights are there, and they're tied fundamentally to issues around the fights around gender ideology. Gender ideology has been castigated by people that are conservative, right-wing, often from a religious fundamentalist standpoint, that somehow decree that it's there, there's no such thing as gender, there's only sex. And then at the same time, they want to have people having babies, but they don't don't want them to have abortions, but they actually are also not tied to understanding the reproductive autonomy actually is a crucial part of whether one has children or not. So these are the attacks that are underway. It's a global phenomenon. It's playing out particularly in the U.S. and legislatures, particularly those that have had seen a predominance of conservative politicians and uh, voted in. And that's also partly courtesy of all kinds of gerrymandering that's been going on. So you can't be seen as an expression of the quote unquote people's will because actually popular 
popular public opinion really supports in many states, all the states, rights for reproductive choice, rights for reproductive justice. And that's also shown in terms of the recent attempts to over legislatures to rule out and have popular referenda say, no, actually, we should be still protecting reproductive rights. Well, as so what we do at our school, uh, just to say quickly, is we've had this International Women's Day celebration. And this year, what we wanted to do was have this featured speaker, Nashir Barill, who's been key to organizing what's going to be opening as Boston's first neighborhood birthing center, geared to women who have traditionally been excluded and marginalized by health care systems. It's going to open in Nubian Square in Roxbury. And we wanted to have something where it both represents the struggle, the radical history of reproductive justice and fighting for it, but also because it's about joy and it's about bringing people into the world, bringing new little ones into the world in a context that's caring, welcoming and inclusive. And that that's part of the reproductive justice fight, too. And finally, Professor Krieger, um, I know every uh, International Women's Day, wherever you are, you sing Bread and Roses. And as we wrap up this segment, we're about to play that for our music break. Can you talk about its radical roots? What is Bread and Roses? Yes, yeah, so we close our, our ceremony that we have every year here with that song because it comes actually from very close to Harvard. It was in Lawrence, Massachusetts. It was the big strike that was held by immigrant groups with over 28 different languages being spoken. The international workers of world were involved, the Wobblies. The songbook was there. It gave rise to the song, Bread and Roses, which is about what the women were, in fact, fighting for. And that song itself comes from... Uh, actually a, a letter that was written to Mother Jones, who was a legendary writer, uh, organizer um, before she died, which was saying about fighting for bread and roses. It's both. And then the person who was writing a, report, a radical reporter at the time covering the Lawrence March um, said that beware the movement that generates its own songs, because songs do carry the spirit of the people. And that's what Bread and Roses was about. And that's why we try to teach it to people every year. Well, I want to thank you so much for being with us. And, of course, as Emma Goldman says, as if I can't dance, I don't want to be part of your revolution. Nancy Krieger, renowned professor of social epidemiology at Harvard University's School of Public Health, director of the Interdisciplinary Concentration on Women, Gender and Health. Next up, as the U.N. calls Afghanistan the world's most repressive country for women, we'll go to uh, look at the Afghan women-led um, uh, marches and uh, resistance, I should say, that's taking place in Afghanistan. But first, Bread and Roses. For the people Roses. 
Bread and Roses, performed by the Twin Cities Labor Chorus. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. As we continue to mark International Women's Day, we turn to Afghanistan. Earlier this week, a top U.N. official accused the ruling Taliban of gender apartheid by erasing women from public life. This is Richard Bennett, the U.N. Special Rapporteur on Human Rights in Afghanistan. The Taliban's intentional and calculated policy is to repudiate the human rights of women and girls and to erase them from public life. It may amount to the international crime of gender persecution, for which the authorities can be held accountable. The cumulative effect of the restrictions on women and girls has a devastating long-term impact on the whole population, and it is tantamount to gender apartheid. Earlier today, another top U.N. official in Kabul said, quote, Afghanistan under the Taliban remains the most repressive country in the world regarding women's rights, unquote. Since taking power nearly 19 months ago, the Taliban's move to erase women from public life, banning women and girls from schools, from working with non-governmental organizations and from traveling without a male relative. On Monday, young Afghan women gathered outside Kabul University to protest the Taliban's ban on female education. Cell phone video shows young women sitting on the ground outside the university reading their books in open defiance of the Taliban. We're joined now by Zahra Nader. She is a freelance Afghan journalist who is formerly a reporter for The New York Times in Kabul. She's now based in Canada. She's the editor-in-chief of Zan Times, a new Afghan women-led outlet documenting human rights issues in Afghanistan. Zahra, thanks so much for joining us again on Democracy Now! Can you talk about the state of women in your country? Thank you, Amy, for having me on this special day and giving me an opportunity to speak about the situation of women in Afghanistan. As we heard, and as you mentioned, Afghanistan is now effectively one of the biggest prisons in the world for women. And what we are seeing and what is happening um, in the past 19 months is a continuation of building a gender apartheid in Afghanistan. And I think what's happening is going something beyond what we understand as a concept of gender apartheid. Because at least in gender apartheid, people of the same color are allowed to interact with each other. That's not happening in Afghanistan. We are women, based on their gender, are effectively in prison in their home. And the recent development, as uh, you mentioned, is that um, the board that uh, UN uh, Special Rapporteur um, used was very strong. And the gender prosecution, which could be um, prosecuted, it said, amount to gender um, bound to crime against humanity. So this is the development that's happening. Women are no longer allowed in Afghanistan to, to go to school. They cannot go to university. They cannot work, neither in public sector nor in NGOs, which that by itself affects uh, 11.6 million women in Afghanistan, according to UN data. And then Afghanistan is one of the countries that has one of the largest population of widow women because of the four decades of war we have. So there is a lot going on with women in Afghanistan. And um, what's happening is, unfortunately, we are really having a little sense of how do women in Afghanistan are living this day their lives with not having access to public life, not being able to fully and even um, very minorly to participate in, in life in Afghanistan, in public life in Afghanistan. So 
what we are hearing is that no, there's no legal uh, protection for women in Afghanistan, especially for those that are flying, uh, fleeing domestic violence. Um, as we know, even before the Taliban takeover, Afghanistan was one of the countries that was rated as a worst country to be a woman in. And also we had reports from uh, Afghanistan Independent Human Rights Commission before saying that 95% of violence against women were happening at the home. And what is really the scale of that violation um, that uh, violence against women in Afghanistan? I feel that we don't have a clear view of what is exactly taking place because lots of independent uh, journalists, media are shut down. They cannot function because of the Taliban censorship, because of the Taliban threat and intimidation that we continue uh, to hear and also experience as, as our journalists are in Afghanistan and working and trying to raise the voice of uh, women from Afghanistan. So what we are hearing is a lots of concern, a lots of um, strong languages in terms of saying what's happening. But what we are seeing is little action to actually reverse this uh, human rights violation, to take a uh, powerful and a strong and global stand that this should not be tolerated. As uh, Richard Bennett also mentioned in, in, in his report, that it's intolerable and should not be normalized. Uh, and also what we are seeing in Afghanistan is some level of uh, normalization of these violations. So, Zahra, can you <clears throat> talk about how um, life for women, everyday life uh, for women in Afghanistan, has changed in these last 19 months? Your newspaper, uh, Zan Times, uh, spoke to some women. Tell us what they told you ahead of International Women's Day. So what they're telling us is a sense of um, depression, a sense that you wake up every day in your life and you have nothing to go for. There is nothing for you to stand up and say, this is what I will be doing today. There is no hope for education. There is no hope for you to contribute to your society. And we are, what we are hearing is a lot of sense of um, hopelessness among women and that they committing suicide in greater number. However, it's so hard to get data, as I said, that the Taliban are severely repressing and suppressing media and freedom of information in Afghanistan. So there is a lot going on in the lives of women who see no hope uh, or no light at the end of the tunnel. This is one part that we obviously see and read about and we hear from the people and my colleagues who are um, working in Afghanistan. But also there is a hope. Those women that protested yesterday in Kabul, they know what they're facing. It. They know that when they go to streets and ask for their rights, it's gone. It's the killing. They might be killed on the streets and nothing's going to be changed, but they're still willing to take that risk because that is what, what's going to you know, bring them hope. There's a fight for them to resist for, their, to resist for their fights and what they want, even if that comes at the cost of their own lives. They are willing to take that. That's one way that they go to the protest. And as we see that there's a lot of crackdown, the Taliban are um, torturing, arresting, um, beating them on the streets and also kidnapping them. We have women right now on the, uh, in prison, uh, like Nargis Sadat, uh, who are in prison because they, they protested, because they asked for their rights. This is one way they are continuing to come to the streets and resist. However, there's other ways that do they continue their resistance. And that's uh, so recently I wrote um, a piece about women uh, creating online spaces for themselves to come together and their fight is to keep hope alive for themselves because they know in this darkness that they're facing, that there is no hope for them. They need to survive because they need to think beyond this, beyond what's happening in today. And that is something that they're trying to, to read books 
to to have a sense that this this dark days will pass and they have to be ready for when it's passed and they have to have their motivation their hope is still there for them that they can continue so they, the resistance the women in afghanistan are courageously continuing but there's little we are seeing that international community is doing to to support these voices to support the justified demand of this woman in afghanistan who are half of the population and they deserve they need and their rights must be protected if it doesn't um i think it's it's very hard to speak of an international community and speak of um, human rights uh, as a, as a universal standards Zahra, can you talk about what do you think the international community can do uh, to stand in solidarity with women and speak specifically about how, uh, you know, Afghanistan is also confronting this uh, horrific uh, humanitarian catastrophe and how that's been exacerbated by sanctions as well as massive cuts in foreign aid? Thank you. So I'm going to go back to humanitarian crisis. Right now, as we speak, um, an estimated 28 million people in Afghanistan um, are needing urgent assistance. Um, what that really means is that since the Taliban take over, there is one uh, two-folded issue that we have to speak about. One is that the humanitarian crisis didn't happen by itself. Of course, it happened with the withdrawal and also the return of the Taliban. But what's really exacerbated this crisis is the Taliban cutting. of half of the society from um, essentially um, making it impossible for them to earn their living that is one crucial point that we have to always consider how the people of Afghanistan can uh, overcome this uh, human rights crisis and humanitarian crisis if the Taliban won't allow women to work and also they uh, stop some of industries like music and um, they won't be functioning because the Taliban said that this is illegal it's um, uh, haram for them so there is a lot uh, a lots of this humanitarian crisis is created directly by the Taliban's policies and there is one side we are saying that uh, money goes to Afghanistan humanitarian aid still continue and we have uh, UN appealing for 4.6 billion dollar for 2003 in Afghanistan and that's a lot So there's also concern about uh, the money that we are seeing um 40 million dollar uh, which is arriving in Afghanistan weekly where that money is being spent is a huge question for the people of Afghanistan because what we are seeing on the ground what we are talking to the people they are telling us that this money is not reaching its intended recipients those who are most most at need uh women who lead at household women who doesn't have a mahram we constantly talk with them and they say they are not able to access this aid So this is a big question um of in terms of thinking we are that aid that that is arriving in Afghanistan we are that aid is going we are very worried that's um the people on the ground telling us this this money is helping sustain the Taliban and that's a worry um, and I'm raising here um to um, as, as a way to raise an accountability and monitorship of seeing where this money is going because we don't want this money to feed the Taliban and and sustain them So there is the this part of um, the humanitarian crisis that, that that is happening in Afghanistan. But how can we go beyond this is actually thinking about the society where all the people of Afghanistan have have their own rights so they have the ability to actually earn their living. That ability is right now taken away by the Taliban from half of the society to say the least. And from for the half, the other half there is so many problems created. by the Taliban which which won't allow them to continue their work to continue their living so when we are talking about humanitarian crisis 
Zahra, we, we have 30 seconds. Uh, we have to see all of this. So humanitarian crisis cannot be seen as only one single uh, issue and something that encourages the countries to engage with the Taliban. The action that needs to be taken, I really welcome the action that the European Union taken to sanction to Taliban minister, but that is not enough. We have to go beyond that. What can be done is that the international community is standing together, especially the countries who have feminist foreign policy and the countries who have a strong demand on human rights, a strong stand on human rights. They have to come together and they have to think over this as a global issue. This is something, and this is not about women's rights in Afghanistan only. This is about women's rights globally. And if we cannot deal with this in Afghanistan, be assured that this will extend it to other countries. And this, that is very unfortunate. And I hope that we can call on this special day to all women across the world that please stand up for Afghan women, please stand up for their rights because they don't have the means to fight back the way you see other women in other countries can fight. They don't have the means to come to the streets every day to make sure that their voice is heard because they are being beaten, they're being tortured, they're being kidnapped. So they need your help to, um, they need you to stand for their rights and speak and pressure your governments to take, uh, to be accountable, especially if your government is one of those that were involved in Afghanistan in the past 20 years. You need to take them accountable and to say what's happening in Afghanistan is intolerable and it must, it must be stopped and it must be stopped now. Zahra Nada, we want to thank you for being with us, freelance Afghan journalist, formerly a reporter with The New York Times in Kabul, now based in Ottawa, where she is editor-in-chief of Zan Times, a new Afghan women-led outlet documenting human rights issues in Afghanistan. When we come back, we go to Iran. Stay with us. <laughs> Revolution by the Iranian singer, rapper, songwriter who goes by her stage name, Justina. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh as we go from Afghanistan to Iran, where parents and teachers have been holding protests in Tehran and other cities following a spate of apparent poisonings at girls' schools since November, intensifying recently. According to the group Human Rights Activists in Iran, there have been at least 290 suspected school poisonings in recent months. The group estimates at least 7,000 students have been affected. A number have gone to hospital. They just collapse. Meanwhile, the head of Iran's judiciary said earlier this week that Iranian women could be punished for violating the Islamic dress code. His remarks came just months after the death of 22-year-old Masamini in police custody, sparking nationwide protests. We go now to Manija Muradian. She is an assistant professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at Barnard College at Columbia 
University. Her new book is titled This Flame Within, Iranian Revolutionaries in the United States. She's part of Feminist Virginia Network. We welcome you to Democracy Now!, Professor Maradian, um, if you can start off by talking about the significance of International Women's Day in Iran and what's happening with women today, especially the spate of the horror of these what look like poisonings. Yes, absolutely. And thank you so much for having me here today on International Women's Day, um, which is a very significant day in the history of Iran. Um, and maybe I'll start there, because in 1979, um, just after the popular revolution that overthrew the Shah, it was an uprising of tens of thousands of women that began on March 8, 1979, in Tehran, that posed the first challenge to the authoritarian um, authoritarian turn, you could say, of the revolution. Um, it was those women who poured into the streets on International Women's Day um, 43 years ago um, who rightly understood that the enforcement of mandatory Islamic dress code, mandatory hijab, was part and parcel of the erosion of all of the democratic promises of the revolution. Um, and unfortunately, at that time, their demands, their desires to continue the revolution, to actually achieve gender equality, um, were, were sidelined and undermined and ignored. And that's why it's so uh, historically significant and really unprecedented that this current uprising, which, as you said, began in September, has actually this—has had as its starting point demands for gender and sexual freedom, liberation, and equality. Um, the poisonings that you referred to, these horrific chemical attacks on girls' schools that have swept the nation have to be understood as a punishment um, against women and girls who have been leading this nationwide revolt for several months now. Um, and, and in response, people have been protesting. In fact, the National Teachers Union called for nationwide strikes, sit-ins, and demonstrations. And by my latest count, there have been such demonstrations in at least 17 cities. Um, this is a nation in revolt. You know, in the face of um, the imprisonment of dissidents, in the face of um, executions of dissidents and mass torture of dissidents in prison, and now these latest poisonings, um, people are not accepting this. They understand, um, after many years of experience, that the system, unfortunately, cannot be reformed in Iran, and people have drawn revolutionary conclusions. And it's very significant that right now, in Ir Iranian Kurdistan, in Saqez, the hometown of Masajina Amini, um, the teachers are on strike right now, defending the right of women and girls to education, um, but also condemning the broader state repression and the economic crisis that's really impoverishing um, ordinary people in Iran. Um, of course, Saqez is where this uprising began um, in September with the slogan, Women, Life, Freedom, a slogan that is all about life and joy, echoing some of the themes earlier in your show that are connected, deeply connected to feminist movements and to International Women's Day. So the Islamic Republic seems to have nothing to offer but prison and torture and death, whereas this uprising is all about life, is all about celebration of connecting with other human beings, overcoming alienation, overcoming the fear and shame and humiliation um, that the Islamic dictatorship has imposed on people, and actually trying to reorient the entire society in a new direction. 
Uh, Professor Moradian, could you talk about the origins of this uh, protest? You're a member of the Feminists for Gina network. The fact that these protests were largely, if not in many areas, exclusively led uh, by women. And of course, men joined, but women were really at the forefront of these protests. Absolutely. Um, in many ways, we have to understand what's happening now, as I said, as a continuation of that women's uprising that was all too fleeting um, in March of 1979. In other words, women have paid a very heavy price for the fact that the Islamic Republic um, has um, has built its sovereignty, has built its ideas of nationhood and authentic Shiite culture on the bodies and on the backs of women. Um, and so for decades now, women have experienced legal discrimination, um, second-class citizenship, and just the daily humiliation of having to— um, having to move through public space under the threat of police harassment, detainment, torture, and even worse. So when Masajina Amini was killed in police custody, supposedly picked up for wearing improper hijab, it was kind of the straw that, that broke the, bat, the camel's back, in a sense. Um, and and it, was, it, it just crossed a line for people. Um, you know, Iranian women, in many ways, never stopped struggling for their rights. There have been many women's rights campaigns, many efforts throughout the last 43 years to change the discriminatory laws, to fight through parliament, through the courts, through many, many avenues. Um, and, and so people have gotten to this point through struggle and through learning some very painful lessons that this regime is not willing um, to change. So when the movement erupted in Iranian Kurdistan in Saqqaz, it was incredibly significant because it also meant that the kind of feminist politics that have been leading this struggle have been what we call intersectional. Um, and some Iranians use that word, but even if they don't, the point is that the marginalization of Kurdish peoples, um, the ethnic and religious discrimination, and the incredible class inequality of Iranian society have also been at the heart of this movement. In other words, people understand that we can't separate out um, the oppression of women and gender and sexual minorities from all of the other oppressions in the society, including that of ethnic and religious minorities. So this is really a moment um, in which a nationwide uprising was triggered in response to um, state patriarchal uh, violence, you know, uh, um, against women and a kind of refusal to go along with that anymore. Um, so the oppression of women has become a catalyst for all of the other grievances in the society and really led millions of people to conclude that they need a new government, but not just a new government. They want to transform society at every level, in personal relations, family relations, everyday life. And I think it's that revolution, the revolution of everyday life, um, that no amount of uh, state repression um, may be able to stop. Manije Maradian, mm -hmm. we want to thank you so much for being with us, assistant professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at Barnard College, author of This Flame Within, Iranian Revolutionaries in the United States. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh as we end today's International Women's Day special looking at 
abortion bans. Five women are suing Texas after they were denied abortions, even as their pregnancies posed serious risks to their health and were non-viable in the first such lawsuit since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. This comes as women's rights activists Monday called for the Inter-American Court of Human Rights to condemn El Salvador's total ban on abortions, which has been in place since 1998. The demands center on a case brought a decade ago by a woman, Beatrice, who died after being forced to carry a pregnancy, although the fetus could not survive. For more, we're joined by Selena Escher, a Salvadoran Swiss filmmaker who directed the award-winning documentary Fly So Far, about the criminalization of abortion in El Salvador, where dozens have been convicted and imprisoned after having miscarriages, stillbirths, and other obstetric emergencies. Selena, welcome back to Democracy Now! It is great to have you with us. Um, we look from the United States to El Salvador. Is El Salvador the United States' future? Talk about the total ban, but also the resistance. Hello, Amy. Thank you for having me. Yes, exactly. In El Salvador, well, abortion is still criminalized. Um, um, there's no possibility to have an abortion in El Salvador. Women are still uh, criminalized and in, in prison. Uh, but there is a big resistance still happening in El Salvador, although we're living in a state of exceptions in one year. People have lost their human rights and people are being uh, unjustly incarcerated in El Salvador. There's a big movement who have tried to legalize abortion in four cases and also in three cases. But now uh, feminist leader, uh, Lorena Peña, she's facing a lawfare. She's being persecuted, and she's the woman who's also in my film. Uh, she wanted to legalize abortion in four cases, and now she's facing a persecution, political persecution. So in, in general, there is a, an authoritarian regime happening in El Salvador, and feminist activists, journalists, uh, dissident voices, they, everybody is under threat. Everybody is being persecuted. And yeah, this is a really a diff difficult situation that people are facing in El Salvador right now. Uh, Selena, could you talk about what happened with the release of your film, which was banned in El Salvador, and, and the stories that you hear from people who are featured in the film, if you could elaborate on those? Yes, exactly. Well, uh, last year in August, we wanted to have the cinema premiere in El Salvador. We have shown uh, our film in 90 international film festivals. So we decided to launch the, uh, to have the cinema premiere. But then uh, anti-choice uh, organizations, 12 organizations made a legal uh, threat to the cinema. If they show our film in the cinema, uh, they will make a legal threat. So then the cinema had to take down our film. And so we didn't have the cinema premiere. Uh, they tried to silence the voices and the stories of the women of the 17, but we have shown our film uh, in community screenings together with the protagonist, Todara Vasquez, and her organization, Mujeres Libres, uh, across the country. So we are uh, trying and uh, to show our film in many, many ways. But as we see, the evangelical uh, anti-choice groups have so much power. They are trying to silence us and trying to silence the stories of the women. And could you talk more, uh, uh, Selena, about the origins of this law? You mentioned uh, in 1998 uh, this new abortion law. How did it begin? And uh, where do you see it going now? 
Well, uh, abortion was legal in three cases before 1998. Then it was a total ban of abortion in all cases. It was not possible to have an abortion, even if your life is in danger in cases of rape or the fetus will not survive outside the womb. So in, in no cases was uh, legal. And feminist organizations have been trying to legalize abortion since more than 30 years. Uh, but it has been really uh, difficult and almost impossible to, to legalize abortion in El Salvador. Uh, now, um, feminist organizations have brought the case of Beatriz in front of the Inter-American Court. And we are hoping that with this case, we'll open up for... Uh, for the cases of the other women, and it will force El Salvador to change the abortion law. Um, last year, also, the case of Manuela was held in front of the Inter-American Court, and the Inter-American Court ruled in favor of Manuela, saying that El Salvador is guilty for all human rights violations committed against Manuela. Uh, but the government has done nothing, and they don't want, the uh, Bukele doesn't want to change the abortion law. He already said that he will keep... Uh, the um, life that begins the the life begins at conception. So he he only wants to be reelected, but he doesn't want to change the abortion law. So, so we will try with this case to open up and to make more pressure to the Salvadoran government. Uh, Selena, tell us about these cases that are before the uh, Inter-American Court of Human Rights. The case of Manuela that you just mentioned and Beatriz. Well, Manuela was a woman who lived in the countryside. She could not read and write, and she was pregnant. She had cancer, and then she had a miscarriage because of the cancer. Then she was uh, criminalized in the hospital. She was sentenced to 30 years of prison, and she died in prison, leaving two sons behind. And what we want is justice for Manuela and justice also uh, for Beatriz. They are both women who lived in a situation of poverty. They needed to have an, an abortion. For example, the other example, uh, the case of Beatriz, uh, she had lupus and she was pregnant, but the fetus had no brain, so it didn't have any chance of survival outside the womb. Uh, so she asked the courts to have an abortion, but they denied her. And so the state forced Manuela to keep the pregnancy, and it was torture for her for seven uh, months. Uh, it was really a torture for her. And then she, the, well, she had gave birth with the C-section and then, uh, the fetus died after many, uh, like, uh, after three hours. And then she died, uh, uh, years later because of the health issues he, she had. So the state is forcing women to keep pregnancy, also forcing young girls who have been raped to keep a pregnancy. This means torture for the women and girls. Uh, so this is a uh, uh, Selena. Cases. We yes. just have a minute, but I wanted to ask you to put El Salvador in the context of Central America and Latin America overall, where you have what Argentina and Colombia legalizing abortion. What's happening in Central America overall? Well, after uh, in Colombia and Argentina, uh, abortion was legalized. In El Salvador, uh, well, in Central America, happened a major set setbacks because. More and more conservative right-wing evangelical politicians who are in power are causing a major setback in reproductive rights. For example, in Honduras, it is not even legal to decriminalize abortion, not even to talk about it in the parliament. In Guatemala, they made um, a law, a family law that also said that abortion is totally prohibited. In Nicaragua, abortion is also totally prohibited. And El Salvador is the country that is most 
uh, extreme law where women are uh, unjustly criminalized for 30 or 40, 50 years of prison for aggravated homicide. In Mexico, we have just 10 seconds. And in Mexico, well, in Mexico now, it's legal to, to have an abortion and it's anti-constitutional to criminalize abortion, though at, at least this it's uh, happening uh, progressive. Well, we want to thank you so much for being with us. Selena Escher is a Salvadoran Swiss filmmaker and the director of the award-winning documentary Fly So Far, speaking us to us from Stockholm, Sweden. That does it for our show. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. Uh, have a productive, successful, happy International Women's Day.